Welcome to the third season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Every spring, excitement mounts across the country as people attend the county fair. Visions of rabbits and cows amongst the hay. The smell of cotton candy and mini donuts wafts through the hot, humid air. The carnival games attract players to their booths with stuffed animals hanging from the walls and the carny yelling out, We got a winner! Games of cards and dice that entice players to think a win is easy. Tables and booths where people sell their wares. Need an overpriced cowboy hat or a bright colored t-shirt you'll only wear once? This is the place to get it. The midway ride spinning and churning stomachs the dizzying colored lights at night, the flash twist and whirl, to the music pumping. Traveling from town to town throughout the warm months from spring until fall, the carnies set up the rides, the booths, and the attractions, then take them down and travel to the next town and do it all over again. But this is what they signed up for. Some are misfits, who found a place to belong, some are running from the law, and some use it to escape their past. They spend their days watching other people have fun, laughing and smiling, then spend their nights in run-down cheap motels or in their own trailer, if they're lucky. The glitz of neon lights and smell of candy floss hide a sinister side. One where children and adults attend the fair, then disappear. In 1980, 17-year-old Randy Sellers went to the Kenton County Fair in Kentucky. He ended up intoxicated and got into a fight. The police were called, but instead of taking him to the cells, they decided to drive him home. A mile from his house, Randy asked to be let out to walk the rest of the way so he could sober up a little before walking in to see his parents. The officers obliged. Randy never made it home. Then, in 1981, Cinda Pallett and Charlotte Kinsey attended the Oklahoma State Fair. For the first time, their parents had allowed the two 13-year-olds to go on their own. That afternoon, a man who said he was a carnival worker offered them a job unloading stuffed animals from a truck. The girls were seen at 5.30 p.m. Then they both disappeared. In the summer of 1986, 14-year-old Jeremy Bright and his younger sister were visiting family in Myrtle Point, Oregon, when they attended the Coos County Fair and Rodeo. 
In the afternoon, the two siblings parted ways and agreed to meet at the Ferris wheel at 5 p.m. Jeremy never made it. Alfred Carpenter was born in California. His future wife, Pauline, was from Kansas. The couple married in 1986 and had six children, a boy and five girls. Alfred's nickname was Sonny. He and Pauline worked at the Boeing plant for years until their retirement. But they weren't going to spend it sitting around. They decided to travel but not in the usual sense of hopping on a plane and sitting on a beach. They wanted to stay active and decided to spend their summers traveling across the state and selling wares at county fairs. The messenger inquirer described how Sunny renovated a trailer into a pop-up shop for them to take to the fairs. The couple traveled for many years. Miles loved his grandparents and knew they enjoyed traveling together, but he felt at 78 and 79, it was time for them to give up their business and settle down. After all, they had 23 great-grandchildren to enjoy. Miles can still remember when he was 16 and going to the hospital for surgery. He was nervous and asked his grandparents to go with them. They made sure they were there at 6 a.m. and stayed with him until he woke up. In 2018, Sonny told Miles he was going on one last hurrah to get rid of his inventory. Miles was happy to hear it. In July, the couple headed to the Barton County Fair in Great Bend, a typical small-town family event that ran from Wednesday to Saturday. The morning started off with a sunrise prayer service for fun, there was an antique tractor pole. The fair featured the local 4-H club showing off a range of livestock. Goats, sheep, cows, horses, rabbits, and chickens, all with the hopes of winning a ribbon. Music filled the air, while riders of all ages screamed on the carnival rides as they spun, tilted, and turned upside down. And for those seeking to spend their allowance or some extra cash, there would be arts and crafts tables and booths for vendors like Sonny and Pauline, who were there selling jewelry and purses. After they arrived at the fair, Sonny talked to his cousin Marshall and said there was a good turnout of people and that this was the last year doing the circuit. Working at the fair was an eclectic mix of carnies, Kimberly Younger and Michael Fowler were both from Florida. He had a criminal record going back 30 years for burglary and auto theft. Rusty Fraser hailed from Aranis' Pass in Texas, and Christy Tenney was from Santa Fe. Kimberly and Michael had become an item of sorts. In her mind, Kimberly made up what she called the Carnival Mafia. The Virginian pilot reported that she claimed she was part of the organization and that it was involved in money laundering and even murder. Over time, she convinced Michael and Rusty that she knew its leader, Frank Sachek. 
The men didn't see any reason to doubt her. But in reality, there was no Carnival Mafia and no Frank. Kimberly invented him and used her cell phone to set up a fake Facebook account. Pretending to be Frank, she sent messages to Michael and ordered him to carry out a murder. Frank convinced him that it would be his blood to get into the Carnival Mafia. For his initiation, they needed to find a victim, someone who would be easy and not put up much of a fight. Michael and Frank looked around at their options and selected their target, an older couple working at the fair. They set their sights on Pauline and Sonny, a couple who were unknowingly surrounded by evil and simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. Michael picked the couple because they were old. They were alone and vulnerable. Together, Kimberly, Rusty, and Michael devised a plan. First the murder, then they steal their possessions, and Michael planned on how they would clean up after the murders and dispose of their bodies. The smell of food wafting through the air ceased. The rides creaked to one last stop. Music faded out. And the neon lights went dark as a crowd filed out between the gates. The fairgrounds were quiet. Early Saturday morning, the three crept up on Pauline and Sonny's truck and camper that was parked beside their trailer. Court records revealed that Sonny was already up and outside while Pauline was still inside sleeping. Kimberly distracted Sonny by luring him to a space between the camper and trailer and talked to him about the possibility of him selling them. Then Michael snuck up behind Sonny and put him in a headlock, pulled out a large knife, and tried to slice his throat. But Sonny surprised him and resisted. The two struggled. Rusty knew he had to do something. He stepped in and stabbed Sonny in the chest. Michael pulled out his Ruger 9mm and shot Sonny then he went to the camper and turned the gun on Pauline and shot her twice in the head. Rusty dragged Sonny over to the camper and laid him inside on the floor. The couple who spent all their days together died together. At 2.30 a.m., Michael sent a Facebook message to Frank saying, It's done. They're dead. Frank replied, Good job. Now get out. Michael replied, I'm trying to calm down right now. Frank told them to take deep breaths and that the first is always the hardest and that he had pictures of the man and then sent them on to the heads of council. 
Then he stated, The war is over. Only there was no council, and there was no war. It was all in Kimberly's warped mind. Pauline and Sonny's daughter didn't hear from her parents for two days. Concerned, she contacted police and reported them missing. Two days after the murders, the threesome, along with Christine, drove the truck, camper, and trailer 320 miles to the Ozark National Forest near Van Buren, Arkansas. The Democrat Gazette reported they drove down a dirt road into the forest until they found a dry creek bed. They buried Sonny and Pauline in a shallow grave and covered them with rocks, dirt, and pieces of wood. Then the foursome headed to Van Buren and holed up at the Vista Hills apartments. Kimberly made a spaghetti dinner for everyone. They laughed while they ate and acted like nothing happened. Now for the twist. Christine was terrified of the threesome and called her sister and told her she was being held hostage by kidnappers and that they'd killed two people and stolen their RV. Her sister called police and they responded immediately. They found Christine and she admitted that she'd lied. Kimberly refused to give officers her name, which made them suspicious. Police looked around the apartment and found the costume jewelry Sonny and Pauline had been selling at the carnival. Then they noticed a camper with a bullet hole in the parking lot. Inside, they found garbage bags that contained Pauline and Sonny's clothes and a heap of paper towels covered in blood and two 9mm spent shell casings. Police took all four in for questioning. The first to break were Christine and Michael, who told them where they would find Sonny and Pauline. Later, Kimberly told them where they could find the Ruger 9mm. Police reviewed the Facebook messages from Frank and discovered the messages had come from an account on Kimberly's cell phone. They shared that information with Michael. He was surprised to learn that the messages he thought came from Frank were actually from Kimberly, and he commented, she had me suckered the whole way. I just threw my whole life away. In Arkansas, Kimberly, Michael, and Rusty were charged with theft and tampering with evidence and abuse of a corpse. They were extradited to Kansas, and in December, Kimberly, Michael, and Rusty were charged with capital murder. Kimberly was also charged with conspiracy to commit murder, criminal solicitation, and theft. Michael was also charged with theft. Their bail was set at $1 million each. For her part, Christine was charged with three counts of obstructing apprehension and sentenced to 59 months. 
Rusty was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 100 years. Kimberly was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole on capital murder, plus an additional 20 years for conspiracy to commit murder, solicitation to commit murder, and theft. Her sentences are to be served consecutively. Michael was charged with capital murder, premeditated murder, and theft. He pled guilty. At his sentencing, court records state that the judge in part said, It was planned. It was premeditated. It was done for the purpose of stealing property, getting money, or perhaps joining a gang or mafia. Those are the choices you made. He sentenced Michael to 100 years and ordered that the 50-year sentence for the murder of Mr. Carpenter is to be a hard 50. The judge continued, I'm going to run that consecutive because it was two separate crimes that could have been precluded and prevented. And to Mrs. Carpenter, that would also be a hard 50. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Daniel Brophy. Once a successful businesswoman, Nancy and her husband Dan were in a financial mess. She began to write romantic novels with a dash of murder suspense. With retirement looming, she turned her fiction fantasy into reality. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>